This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Haran, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the messy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For high we appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen cloak and shall have the linen on the garment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. This are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for his sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azel. And Aaron shall present the goats on which the Lord fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the Lord fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make a torment over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make a torment for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense in the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goats of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with his blood as it did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, it shall make the atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of the transgressions or their sins. And so it shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may enter in the tent of meeting from the time it enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall make and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. 
and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and a tent of meeting on the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and it shall let the goat free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take half the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in the holy place and put on his garments and come out after his, and offer his bond offering and the bond offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering it shall burn on the altar. And he will let the goats to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the prince who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. It shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary it shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and it shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Yes. O oh God, who speaks, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your commandment is clear, enlightening the eyes. May your spirit illumine this word that our eyes may be opened and our souls revived. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I almost feel like we should start today, as we continue in our series on Christ in the Old Testament, by just having a moment of silence for all the Bible reading plans that met their deaths in this book. So young, so full of promise and good intentions, and at much too early of an age, they expired early in these chapters. And I recognize that Timothy had a very long reading that was perhaps exhausting your patience and testing your interest. This is a difficult book, isn't it? Let's be honest. And there's a reason we bog down in Leviticus. 
Genesis has all these interesting stories and exciting narratives, and so does the beginning of Exodus, you know, this mighty deliverance of God, all these plagues against Pharaoh. And we push our way through, you know, Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and all these laws at the end of Exodus, and then, and then we hit Leviticus, this technical manual for the Levitical priesthood, all these bizarre regulations about clean and unclean foods. Can you eat bats? Can you eat rabbits? Can you eat shellfish? What are we allowed to eat here? There's stuff about, weird stuff about nocturnal emissions and menstrual cycles, how to deal with hair loss and skin discoloration, how to handle mold in your walls, mildew in your clothes, whether you're allowed to wear mixed fabrics or have different kinds of seeds in your field. And honestly, we struggle to feel the relevance and the immediacy of these words. But actually, Leviticus is about God's deep desire to dwell with his people, to be present among a people who have been made holy by the sacrificial work of God's appointed priest. And maybe to help ourselves this afternoon, we'll we'll step back and take a look at just where Leviticus is placed in the Bible so we can understand its purpose and its importance. The first five books of the Bible are the five books of Moses. Sometimes the term Pentateuch is used, which is just Greek for five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these five books are the core of the Old Testament, the constitution of the people of Israel. And the other 34 books following are just reflecting and responding in different ways to the Torah, the instruction, these five books of Moses. And as the third of the five books, even though it's the smallest, Leviticus sits in the very center of the Pentateuch, like the keystone holding the whole arch together. I want to mention that I'm indebted for any insights that may follow to Michael Morales and his book on Leviticus, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Just a fantastic book of biblical theology. And he points out that in the Pentateuch, the first and the last of the five books, Genesis and Deuteronomy, are like the prologue and the epilogue. They share themes of the land and the descendants and the blessing. They kind of mirror each other. And the second and the fourth books, Exodus and Numbers, also reflect each other. Exodus is about Israel leaving Egypt, going towards Sinai. Numbers is about people leaving Sinai, going towards the promised land. The the book of Exodus ends with all these chapters dealing with the construction of the tabernacle. And Numbers begins with all these chapters dealing with the dedication of the tabernacle. And it's all set up for this book, Leviticus, which is about the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, God being with his people in the middle of the camp. And you have this sense, there's all these journeyings, there's the passage of years in these other books, but then as you hit Leviticus, time slows down. And there's this stillness In Leviticus, it's this static book as we revolve around the presence of God in the middle of the camp. The book of Exodus ends in a strange and disturbing way because the tabernacle's built, but then we're told that that Moses is unable to enter the tabernacle, which is kind of a crisis because here God is supposed to meet with his people and he's prepared this place and now their mediator, their intercessor, is not even able to go in. That's how Exodus ends. And then when we hit Numbers, we find at the very beginning, there's Moses in the tabernacle before the presence of God. 
Clearly, something very significant has happened in the book in between, this keystone book of Leviticus. Here's Leviticus in the center, framed by the other four books. But there is even more concentric arrangements that happen. There are no less than 37 speeches of God in Leviticus. There's more direct speech by God in this book than any other book in the Bible. 37 speeches. There are 18 speeches, a central one, and then another 18 speeches. And the very central speech of this keystone book is Leviticus 16, which Timothy read for us. And so with painstaking literary artistry, the whole Pentateuch, these five long detailed books, they've been constructed as a set of concentric circles, one upon the other, like those Russian nesting dolls, and you open and you open and you open, and the very center of them is the Day of Atonement, at the very heart of the life of Israel. But before we get into that chapter, I just want to give a very quick survey of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is about the tabernacle, this tent that Israel was ordered to construct based on the pattern that God had revealed to Moses on the holy mountain. And actually, the tabernacle is a sort of mobile Mount Sinai, a way the people of God could carry the presence of God along with them when they left Horeb and traveled through the wilderness. It was the dwelling place of God on earth. God's presence, Israel would learn, is good, but it's also dangerous. It's like the sun. All life on earth derives its energy ultimately from the sun. But the sun is a consuming fire that will destroy anyone who gets too close. And God's presence is the same way. Dangerous for Israel. And therefore, just like Mount Sinai, the tabernacle has all these layers of carefully defined and carefully guarded boundaries. This whole security system, not to protect God from Israel, but to protect Israel from God. And at the very center was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, the most holy place. And there in that cubic room was the Ark of the Covenant, this chest that contained the law of God. And the symbolic, it was God's symbolic throne. And guarding that room was a curtain. And then there's the, most, there's the holy place. And in that room, there are two main objects. There's a lampstand with seven branches. And it's positioned directly opposite from the table of showbread, where there were loaves on it that were changed every week on the Sabbath day. The lamp symbolized the presence of God. And there's this interesting detail that the priests, when lighting the lamps, were specifically instructed to make sure the light from the lampstand was shining on the 12 loaves of bread, symbolizing, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. It was what the tabernacle was all about. The holy fullness of God's presence, shining with grace and glory upon the gathered tribes of Israel. And we don't have time to describe all the elaborate rituals and ceremonies and sacred days that Israel was instructed to, the priests were instructed to carry out in this book. There were sacred places, there were sacred activities, there were sacred times. And there was a sacred group of people from within, the priests from the tribe of Levi, who had all these regulations that they themselves were called to follow. Ceremonial garments that they were called to wear. Ceremonial washings 
that they were required to carry out, and all sorts of other requirements pointing to the fact that there was a higher standard for the priesthood because they had a special status, holy to the Lord, separated for his service. But in the second half of the book, we discover there's also a holiness code for the whole people of God. Because actually, the whole nation was called to be a nation of priests, to minister to God among the nations, and ultimately for the nations. Separated from the nations for the sake of the nations. And then in Leviticus, we have long lists of purity laws that are all about divisions and separations between the clean and the unclean, the pure and the impure. The clean state, that was the ritual state in which you were able to approach God, and the unclean state meant stay away until you're once again clean. And these ritual codes of cleanliness and uncleanliness affected every area of life. What you ate, what you wore, what you touched, God's pervasive holiness affected every single aspect of Israel's life. Now, I want to be clear, to be unclean didn't mean that you were in sin. You couldn't help having your period or accidentally touching a dead bird while you were climbing a tree. This was a ritual impurity that reflected the symbolic order of the universe. And time would fail us today to go into all those details, but it's about what is considered normal and abnormal, healthy and unhealthy, and ultimately things that pertain to life and things that are connected with death. Until you follow the ritual processes, the regulations that God had laid out, you couldn't go into God's presence. There are actually three states you can be in in Leviticus. Unclean, clean, holy. The unclean and the clean, that's the profane state of ordinary life. Holiness is separated to God. And you could go in either direction, from uncleanness to cleanness to holiness, or the other way around, holiness, cleanness, holiness, profane, unclean. And it reflected, actually, the order of space in the universe. Holy, the tabernacle. Clean, the camp. Unclean, the wilderness. And the reason, of course, the tabernacle is holy is because... God dwells in the tabernacle. He's at the very center. It's the dwelling place of God. And holiness, therefore, is about getting closer and closer to God, who is the source of light and life. And uncleanness is about being pushed further and further away from God to the place of death and darkness towards chaos and the void. So actually, Leviticus and these laws are not ultimately about holiness. Holiness is for the sake of drawing near to God. Holiness is what makes it possible to go into God's presence and experience the abundance of life and joy with him. And if you sift through the details of Leviticus, and these chapters do repay careful reading, if you sift through them, you'll find that woven onto the curtains of the tabernacle were figures of pomegranates which in the ancient world were a symbol of everlasting life. It's as though the tabernacle represented on earth a sort of shard of Eden. Perhaps those were even figures of the actual fruit from the tree of life. And so the tabernacle in Leviticus holds out the possibility that Eden might be restored, the place of fellowship, the place of holiness, the place of life and closeness to God, that that God is making a way in the middle of a fallen, unclean, defiled, dying world, 
for sinful and exiled human beings to somehow be able to come back into God's presence and fulfill their priestly destiny. And in Leviticus, sacred time and sacred place converge towards the most sacred time of the year in the most sacred place when once a year, the high priest alone would enter the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, to make atonement for the people. This day is the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the high feast of high feasts. And to this day, the Day of Atonement is the most high and holy day in the Jewish calendar. It actually occurred this week. It began on Tuesday evening, ended on Wednesday evening, Yom Kippur, the highest holiday in the Jewish faith. But this day began, the very first day of atonement began as a reaction to something terrible that had happened. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were commissioned as priests, went into the tabernacle, very possibly into the Holy of Holies, bearing strange fire. Fire that had not been consecrated from the altar, seemingly common fire from the camp. They were not careful to follow God's exact instructions for approaching them, and they were immediately struck down by the power of God. A severe warning that God can only be approached in the way that he has directed. God's holiness means that you can't just waltz in to God's presence, kind of playing it by ear, going what feels good to you in the moment, and just expecting that you're going to be accepted and everything is going to be okay. This is like going into a nuclear reactor without wearing your hazmat suit, without even following the checklist. Things will go very badly for you as they did for these two foolish priests. This obviously was a personally shattering event for Aaron as two of his sons have been struck down on the same day. But there's potentially an even worse problem for the whole people. In the tabernacle, maybe even in the Holy of Holies, there are two dead bodies. The most unclean thing possible in Leviticus is a human corpse. And now there are two of them defiling the sanctuary and jeopardizing God's presence among his people. And so God sets up this day of atonement as a way to deal with the impurity and defilement of the most holy places. The day of atonement is kind of like an annual spring cleaning You know, over time, over the course of the year, as all this sin and guilt and iniquity is being brought into the tabernacle to be dealt with and for sacrifices to be made, that over time, over the course of the year, the priests and the altars and the tabernacle itself are going to start contracting defilement. It's kind of like a smog buildup that needs to be scrubbed clean. So God speaks to Moses. And he tells him, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come into the most holy place whenever he feels like it, or he's going to die. Your your only safety, Aaron, is to follow these instructions to the letter. So however much we might struggle to maintain interest in Leviticus, however much you might have kind of faded away during the reading of this passage, you can bet that the high priest and all the other priests paid very close attention to these words Because if they didn't, things would go badly for them. So first, Aaron is supposed to put on a sacred linen tunic, linen undergarments, linen sash, linen turban. You know, on every other day of the year, the high priest wore this beautiful and ornate set of garments with all this jewelry and beautifully detailed embroidery. But here, on the highest day of the year, he's not to wear any of that. 
He's to come in simplicity and humility to atone for himself, first of all, as a sinner. Even before put on this clothes, he needs to bathe himself in water. And all the other days of the year, the priest would just wash their hands, but now his whole body needs to be cleansed. And his first task after preparing is to offer a bowl for his own sin offering to make atonement. Atonement is a word that occurs again and again and again in this chapter. For a sin offering, a recognition that even the high priest was fallen, sinful, imperfect, and needed sacrifices. And man, Aaron is certainly an example of that. Even while Moses was on top of the mountain, God writing the Ten Commandments with his finger, Aaron's down below, leading the people in constructing the golden calf. An event which he later tries to explain away to a wrathful Moses as well. We just threw our jewels into the fire, our jewelry, and, and out came this calf. And the lamest excuse in the Bible. Aaron is a sinful, defiled high priest who needs atonement. Atonement, this word means to ransom or deliver by a substitute. The animal dies in my place. It represented the Israelites, the high priest's own life. It was a way of dealing with his sin so that he could come before God, so the relationship could be restored. The English word atonement is quite beautiful, actually, because the word atone is a combination of at one. I know this sounds like one of those corny preacher things that can't possibly be true. Look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's true. Atonement at one. It was a way of bringing together God and the people through sacrifice. And atonement represented the balancing of God's justice and God's mercy. So that sin could be named and confronted and exposed in its evil and then destroyed so that people could live before God. He was to find two male goats. And according to later rabbinic tradition, these goats were meant to be identical looking goats. Same height, same color, same everything. They were like two sides of the same coin. They were linked together in the Day of Atonement like Siamese twins. They're going to symbolize two aspects of a single offering. We'll get to that in a minute. So Aaron would, or the high priest after him, would slaughter the bull for himself and his own household, that is, the rest of the priesthood. And then, with what I can only imagine as great trepidation, Aaron would take a censer of burning coals from the altar, and then he would add two handfuls of finely ground incense to create a cloud of smoke before going into the curtain into the most sacred, the most dangerous, and the most deadly zone of all to the Holy of Holies. The point of the incense, the point of this cloud of smoke, was to conceal the atonement cover, the gold lid over the ark, so that Aaron couldn't see it. Otherwise, he might die. The mercy seat, the atonement cover, symbolized the throne of God. And over it were two cherubim with overshadowing wings. And so Aaron was actually going into the holy place blind. It was just filled with smoke. He couldn't see what was going on. He was taking this bull's blood and sprinkling it towards the atonement cover that he knew was there in the mist somewhere, but he couldn't even see. Sprinkling, notice, not touching, but blindly flinging the blood from his fingertips toward the unseen throne of God. 
And then he would slaughter the first of the two goats that had been chosen by God by lot for the sin offering. And then he'd go back behind the curtain a second time, flinging the goat's blood against the mercy seat. And then sprinkling his way, as it were, from the inside out, he does the same thing for the tent of meeting, which sits among the uncleanness of the people and the altar in the courtyard. Aaron's sins have been atoned for. The people's sins have been atoned for. The sanctuary has been cleansed, but now the second half of the ceremony begins. Because now the live goat is brought forward, the symbolic twin of the one that had been sacrificed. And in contrast to the mysterious ritual that went on in the inner sanctum, which none of the people could see, and even the high priest couldn't even really see what he was doing, what happens here occurs in the presence of the whole nation. And we can imagine gathering around, watching this ceremony happen in hushed silence. The high priest lays both of his hands on the head of this live goat and confesses over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins of every kind, and puts them on the goat's head. It's the ritual transfer of the nation's sin onto the head of an innocent victim. And notice that he's supposed to put his hands on first before he starts confessing. Because if he starts confessing before connecting with the animal, he's going to be the one who takes on the unbearable weight of the nation's sin. And there's this sense in this ritual that sin kind of takes on an existence of its own. That iniquity has a malevolent presence within the community. And somehow it needs to be gathered up and then expelled. The first goat was sacrificed to the Lord, but the second goat is sent to Azazel. Now, some of your translations might say scapegoat there, but that's just not grammatically possible with the Hebrew. The word is Azazel, which only occurs in Leviticus 16. And we're not quite sure what's being spoken of here, but it kind of seems like some demonic force or personification out in the wilderness. Remember, the wilderness is the most unclean place the place of death and chaos and non-being. And so we get the sense that all the evil of Israel is like chemical waste that's been collected and put in a garbage truck and sent back to its source. This is not about sacrificing to a goat demon. This is about taking evil and flinging it into the void. And so someone, some assistant, would take this goat which is now bearing the weight of the entire nation's sins and bring it to a remote place from which there was no possibility of the goat returning. What a horror if this goat would wander back into the camp. In fact, according to later tradition, they would push the goat off a cliff just to make sure that it was dealt with because they wanted to make absolutely sure that this cursed animal would never haunt or harm the community again. The lesson of Leviticus 16 is that God provides a way of atonement so that he can safely dwell with his people. God provides a way of atonement. This wasn't like Moses and Miriam and Aaron brainstorming and coming up with some ideas on a whiteboard and like, hey, let's try this and shove that guy forward and see what happens. This is God's way of reconciliation. All our sins and impurity, all our guilt, all our rebellion— have stained us deeply. And therefore, the presence of God, which is so beautiful and so life-giving, for us defiled, unclean people becomes something ominous and threatening. But God's desire is to come and be with his people. 
He wants to abide with us, to make his home among us. And that is the thrust of the whole scripture from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem. God wants to be with his people. And so if there is a way for that to happen, it can only be a way that God himself devises. And to come in any other way is to risk the same fate that met Nadab and Abihu, who offended God by bringing strange fire and were themselves consumed. The good news, the reason we were singing and celebrating so joyfully earlier is that Christ has made a way. He is the way. He is God's way. And Jesus provides the glorious reality, the wonderful substance that the Day of Atonement was always pointing towards. Because after all, as the book of Hebrews asks, how could the blood of bulls and goats possibly take away human sin? How could you be satisfied looking at that? That could only have been a symbol pointing to something else. How could that satisfy our conscience? And how could we possibly trust the work of a high priest who was sinful himself and needed atonement? A priest who would one day die, revealing he too was under God's judgment and need to be replaced. Clearly, this whole elaborate sacrificial system is a kind of placeholder for someone, for something far greater and more glorious and above all, permanent and effective. I love this chapter because even though it's long and detailed, it's no less than four types of Christ, four things that point towards Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the great high priest who endangers his own life to make atonement for the people. He's the one chosen by God, set apart and anointed for God's service. And notice, the high priest is told to be completely alone in the tabernacle while all this is going on. There's no priests, there's no Levites, there's no helpers, there's no assistants while the heart of the ceremony is happening. And notice how after the rituals are complete, he puts back on his holy high priestly garments, wearing the ephod with the 12 stones, the 12 jewels that represented the tribes of Israel. The whole point of the high priest is that he stands in the place of the people. He is there for their sake. He's representing them. You know, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies with this cloud of incense. The cloud, a sign of his priestly work. Jesus bore his sacrifice into heaven with the clouds. Taking his place on the mercy seat that Aaron wasn't even allowed to look at or touch. Jesus goes and he sits down on that golden throne as the son of God, there to intercede powerfully on our behalf. There's no need for him to make any further sacrifices. He intercedes powerfully on our behalf as our faithful, sympathetic, and effective high priest forever. The second thing that points to Jesus in this passage is the goat of the sin offering, the first goat. Because Jesus is our perfect and spotless sacrifice. Offered up to God on the cross for the sins of Israel and indeed the whole world. To make us all not just clean but holy before God. He's there to make atonement. He is the most costly sacrifice that human beings could possibly offer. He's the one who ransoms us for God's service. He's our representative, our substitute, whose blood cleanses God's people completely. So no guilt, 
No impurity remains, and we can come freely before God. But this other goat also points to Christ. The live goat sent to Azazel. Because Jesus is also the one who is cursed for us. Who takes on his own head all the sin, all the iniquity, all the rebellion, all the impurity of the entire nation. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he bears it away so it never haunts or harms the camp again. As far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our transgressions from us. He's the priest. He's these two goats. But he's also the word who came to tabernacle among us, as John says. Jesus is the very place of the presence of God. This is why we no longer need any earthly temple, for Jesus himself is the tent of meeting, where we go to meet with God. And when Jesus gave up his last breath on the cross, you remember the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom by the hand of God himself, because Jesus' sacrifice is so powerful that it just obliterates all barriers between sinful, impure, unclean human beings and a holy God. Brothers and sisters, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Atonement is not an end in itself. The cross is about something far greater than just dealing with my guilt and taking away my punishment. It's about actually bringing me into the holy life-giving, abundantly joyful presence of God where I can feast on the fruit of the tree of life forever. A way has been made. A sacrifice has been offered. Our priest, even now, is ministering for us, his people. Our sin, our guilt, our shame, no longer a barrier. Jesus has dealt with it. That is why we rejoice. That is why we celebrate So what better way to immediately apply this message than to stand up, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, and to rejoice in the salvation that God has offered for us. Let me pray, and then we will stand and do that. Heavenly Father, holy, awesome, glorious, beautiful God, we rejoice that your presence is offered to us, that you have made a way to dwell with us, your people, to abide among your redeemed. We gratefully confess that Christ is our only hope. He alone is the way. And Lord, once again, we come and we travel along that way to you, our Father, our eternal home. May we mount up like eagles, lifted by the wind of your Holy Spirit, and fly straight toward the sun, O Lord, into the fire that gives life but no longer consumes. Help us to come boldly, boasting in Christ and in him alone. In his great name we pray. Through his mediatorial action we come, O Lord. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.